chapter 4, concluding our study in this particular book, 2 Timothy 4, tremendous text as Paul concludes his word to his dear son in the Lord, Timothy. Let us hear the word of God. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not, not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will ter- turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychius to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the... Metalworker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let us bow in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would give us an openness and a receptivity to your word as we meditate on it in this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. These are the final written words of the godly and great-hearted Apostle Paul. He knows that his time is short, probably only a matter of months until his death at this point, until the slow grinding wheels of Roman justice, if we were to call it in this particular case, leads to his execution. He tells Timothy to come immediately and bring Mark. Timothy, pastoring at Ephesus right now, 
Come immediately, bring Mark. Later we hear him say, come before winter, uh, because that was the best time. You couldn't travel between November and March, and when you did, it was very risky. And so he tells Timothy to come immediately. It would be weeks, if not months, before Timothy and Mark would finally arrive, if they did arrive at all. We don't know for sure. But if they did make it in time, we can imagine the joyful fellowship they would have cherished with Paul in these final weeks or months of his life, along with Luke, Paul's ever-faithful physician and friend who was with him much of the time, and we read here was one of the only ones with him at this point. Most likely, these three were by Paul's side as he was taken out of the city of Rome, and according to Clement of Rome, he was beheaded at the Ostian Gate. Timothy had been to Paul like his son, his son in the Lord. And in these final words, we hear the Apostle Paul speak this urgent call to Timothy and also to us to fulfill his ministry and for us to fulfill our ministries as we've been given ministry, calling by God, this urgent call to live for Christ as we long for Christ's appearing. I would like us to see, first of all, that longing for Christ's appearing enables us to keep first things first. Longing for the return of Christ, looking to the appearing of Christ, helps us to keep first things first. It's so difficult in life, this life to keep our priorities right. But here we see, as, as Paul speaks these very familiar words to Timothy, in fact, this text at the beginning of 2 Timothy 4 is probably the most frequent text used in ordination services, when, when men are charged to fulfill their calling to preach the Word. And, and we hear this here, but it's interesting that the introductory verse to this five, really a five-fold command in verse 2 to Timothy, is this reference to living in light of Christ's return. Notice how Paul begins that text. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. And then he goes on and and gives the charge to Timothy. Notice how he speaks about Christ, the ultimate judge, Christ and his appearing, Christ and his kingdom. Very powerful truths about Jesus Christ. We, we sang in one of our hymns about uh, the, the day spring. Jesus is referred to in, in Luke's gospel as the day spring. The, the return of Christ is to be like the rising sun to every believer as we seek to live for Jesus Christ right now. It's as if we've been working through a long, dark night. I don't know if you've ever worked a night shift of any kind, but If you ever tried to do that or if you've stayed up all night, the night can be very long. But imagine working through a dark night and working, looking for the dawn. And it's as if the Christian life is in the night. And as we work and seek to live for the Lord and seek to believe His Word and to follow Him, we see the sky in the east slowly brighten. And we keep working, knowing that very soon, the day spring, the sun is going to rise, and it's going to be daytime. 
we know that the sun will rise, that Jesus Christ will return. And Paul was deeply motivated motivated by the appearing of Jesus Christ. We see it here in verse 1. We'll see it again later. But he seeks to press this motivation upon Timothy. Timothy, in view of the fact that Jesus Christ will return, that all of this is working toward that great climax of history, fulfill your calling. Stand firm, preach the word, be prepared in season and out, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. We could generalize this calling to all Christians in this way. We could say, in whatever ways God is calling you to serve Him and to seek first the kingdom of Christ, do it with a view to Christ's return. Keep first things first in your life. Everything else is passing away. The day spring is going to arise. Ernest Shackleton, that famous British explorer of the early 1900s, took his crew of 26 men on the ship Endurance, a well-named ship as in terms of what they ended up experiencing, setting out in the late summer of 1914, just, as, just before World War I began, set out on this expedition to reach Antarctica, which had been reached, and the, the South Pole had been achieved. But their plan was to do something that no one else had done, and that is to transverse the entire continent of, south of uh, Antarctica. Of course, if you know the story at all, you'll know that they actually never set foot on the landmass of Antarctica because of what they experienced as they sought to guide their ship closer and closer to the land and went through literally hundreds of miles of this great Arctic ice flow seeking to work through the big masses of ice, their ship was stuck and they couldn't get out of the ice flow. And so they were within 100 miles of the coast, but they never achieved their destination. And there they remained for uh, many months until finally they had to totally abandon their ship. They had been living on the ship and on the ice during those many months. And they had to take every supply that they uh, feel that they might need, take it off the ship and watch their ship be finally and fully crushed and destroyed by these massive uh, ice flows and watched it sink under the water and ice. And so there they were marooned on this gigantic ice flow. And they set off to reach the northern end of the ice flow, the direction from which they had come, with three small lifeboats, all 26 of them in these three lifeboats. Well, you can imagine that the commander's command to them was, you needed to get rid of everything that you're not going to need. We have to get rid of everything. We have to leave it on the ship, destroy it in some way, whatever the case might be. You absolutely have to put first things first and only take what would be absolutely necessary for survival on that journey of paddling, rowing, from ice flow to ice flow until finally they could come to the edge of that great ice flow. And so that's what they had to do. Even the photographer 
had to choose certain negatives to take, and they sealed them, the ones that he would keep, in a small tin, and then Ernest Shackleton actually had him destroy the 400 remaining negatives so he wouldn't be tempted to return to try to get them. Interesting, isn't it? Well, this is the same impact as living with a view to Christ's return has on our lives. It gave them great clarity to see their ship sink. They knew that there was no going back. There was no getting back on the ship. There was no fulfilling their task. They had another task now, and that was to put every effort to getting home again. For Timothy, we see here that it meant putting a priority on preaching the Word of God. And we go on to read in verses 3 and 4 that this will not be an easy task. Notice the propensity that the Apostle Paul points to that people will tend to let their sinful desires dictate what they want to hear. He says, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That has been a reoccurring phenomenon in the history of the church. In other words, how does sanctification take place in our lives? Think of it this way. We receive God's truth, and we know that the Bible says that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds as the Holy Spirit works in us, transforming us into the very likeness of Christ more and more as we believe in Him and receive His truth, and His Spirit works it out in our lives. So God's truth has impact on our minds, and then it changes us from the inside out, changing our desires and then our behaviors and our words and the way we live. Now, what we see in verses 3 and 4 is the exact opposite of that typical biblical pattern of sanctification. Here we see wrong desires. It's like wag the dog, having the tail wag the dog. These desires, we see, that instead to suit their own desires, those desires dictate to the mind... Well, we don't agree with God's Word. We don't want to hear certain things about God's Word or God's truth. And so, with the result that, well, tell us what we want to hear. It turns the whole equation upside down. We want you to tell us what we want to hear. And then we don't have to change our desires that are wrong. You see how it's just turned around the biblical pattern for sanctification. Here are some examples, I think, of ways that we see this occurring. I have three, and I'm sure you could think of more, of people uh, having itching ears, so to speak, and not wanting to hear the truth. One is a spirituality that is divorced from the God of the Bible, a spirituality that is divorced from the God of the Bible. You probably know this. Sometimes we don't stop to think of it, but spirituality is very much in right now. It's very much in vogue In fact, if you watch the Academy Awards tonight or read about movie stars, I'm sure you'll find out that if you read about their lives at all, they're interested in spirituality, whether it's something like Scientology that we know about or or some other spiritual way to approach God or the force or whatever is out there. But one thing you can be sure of 
you will hear very, very little about the God of the Bible in whatever spirituality is being pursued. So, many people in our society want a form of spirituality, and in that sense, we should take advantage of that spiritual hunger or thirst and hold forth Christ. But the sad fact is that many people, the last thing they want to hear about is the God of the Bible. I think that's an example of this. Another example in our day is that we find a form of Christianity that is divorced from the truths of the Bible. This is kind of a variation on a theme, but it's a little bit different than the one that I just said. In other words, here's actual Christianity, in name at least, but that's divorced from the Bible's great truths, what we would call the fundamentals of the faith. Yes, we want Christianity, and maybe people would go to a Christian church in name, but they don't want to hear about sin or Jesus Christ as deity, as true God, or the nature, that, the fact that the Bible speaks about a hell, or there is a need to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved and, and that he is the only way, or that the Bible teaches clearly the moral law of God, and there is a right and wrong, all those kinds of things. Not, you know, not just some vague general Christianity that just basically says, well, there's a God of love and everyone will be okay. No, you see, it's a form of Christianity, but it's divorced from great biblical truths. And that's another example of uh, not putting up with sound doctrine. I might even add a third. I don't know if it exactly fits into verses 3 and 4 of what's being said here, but I think this is the kind that probably would hit closest to home for you and for me, and that is a correct theology that is divorced from a heart for God and a walk with Christ. In other words, this is a temptation for you and for me, isn't it, to have all of our theology right and, you know, able to cross our theological T's and dot our theological I's, but have that knowledge simply puff, puff up instead of we know that love builds up. And the danger of being filled with spiritual pride because we know the truth of God, and so somehow we stop it from getting to our heart. And probably that's the biggest temptation that we face to know right theology but fail to apply it to our lives. And to the extent that we might do that and to hold on to our desires that we know are wrong and keep God's word at bay, so to speak, we are falling into this same trap. Instead, longing for Christ's appearing means that we live our lives in light of that great day. We don't do what we read about here in verses 3 and 4. No, instead, we keep in mind, verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. We keep that, that great truth in view. Whatever your particular calling might be, and you might not be called like Timothy or, or like me in the way that I would do it right here to preach the word, whatever your exact calling by God, whatever your giftedness, whatever the opportunities might be that God gives you, I think it, it's expressed very well in First Peter chapter 4 at verse 8. Peter says, above all, again, there's that note, first things first, 
Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then he's going to talk about some specific ways that people are gifted and called to serve. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. There's that calling to use whatever gift God's given you to serve the Lord and to serve others faithfully. And so, living in view of Christ's appearing helps us to put first things first. Secondly, longing for Christ's appearing enables us to persevere in the long run. In the face of hardship and suffering, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is one day going to return, that the day spring's going to rise, that enables us to press on in hardship. And there's a beautiful picture of this in the Apostle's words in verses 6 through 8. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You know, when you read Paul's words there, don't you feel almost like you don't even, I know I feel like this, I don't even deserve to be put in the same paragraph with the Apostle Paul. When you think of how he had to run the race and fight the good fight, and you can read in 2 Corinthians paragraphs that describe what he faced, shipwrecked, beatings, getting whipped, uh, all the things that he went through, and yet he's, he's... Comparing himself to a drink offering, he's imagining the drink offering of wine poured out on the offering, and he says, that's like me being poured out for the cause of Christ, but he's finished the race. And then he says at the end there, at at verse 8, and not only to me, but now this applies to you and me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. If we've longed for the appearing of Christ genuinely from our hearts in faith, looking to Him, we're included. We're part of the ones who will enjoy this this wonderful crown of righteousness, which I believe is a description of the final, ultimate completion of our righteousness in Christ, that we'll be finished with every sin, that we'll be righteous without any sin left. And, And from that flows the joy in our union with Christ. Well, Paul endured many hardships. As he writes this, he is chained in prison. And now it's not under house arrest, as we usually think of him writing the book of Philippians or Ephesians or Colossians. He did that when he was under house arrest and people were coming and going, preaching to them. But now he's not under house arrest anymore, at least as tradition holds it. Now he's in the infamous Mamertine prison in Rome, this dismal underground chamber with a single hole in the ceiling that gives some light and some air. It's almost like being in in a pit. But that wasn't the only kind of suffering the Apostle Paul was experiencing. As we look and just read his 
greetings and what he describes here, we see some of the other aspects to the hardships of these days for Paul. We look at verses 9 and 10, and he says, Do your best, Timothy, to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Demas, apparently very highly esteemed among the co-workers with Paul. We have reference to him elsewhere. But at this point, he apparently couldn't take it anymore, and he's gone apparently to the Christian community at Thessalonica. So it's, it's not saying necessarily that he's apostatized or somehow abandoned the faith, but he's left Paul. And then Paul also lists Christians and Titus, who have gone as well, but they're probably on mission works doing that. And he says, only Luke is with me. I have to smile when he says that because probably Luke is his amanuensis. He's probably writing this. And it's just like, oh, only John is with me, you know. <laughs> but he didn't mean it that way, of course. Luke, his, his beloved physician and friend who had been with him through many years, um, but only Luke is with him at this point. So one of the aspects of Paul's suffering revealed here is this loneliness that many of his workers are not there anymore. He needs to see Timothy and Mark one more time, and hopefully they get to see him. And then there's this whole physical suffering that he's experiencing in this damp prison, chained. In verse 13, he alludes and talks about bringing the cloak. You know, I went down into my basement the other day when it snowed, and I, you know, I got one of my extra coats that I have down there. I have a a snow-blowing coat, just in case, you know, because it's kind of old, and it's got a hood and everything. And I was reading this and thought, well, Paul had to have a cloak brought to him. I've got coats for every possible reason. I have too many coats. We have such abundance. But I can imagine, Paul, winter is coming. He needs the cloak. So there's physical suffering. There's mental anguish as well. Thinking about the, the cause of Christ, thinking about Timothy and Mark and others who will have to carry the task after Paul leaves. Of course, he knows that the Lord will uphold them, but humanly speaking, there is genuine concern. And he alludes to the parchments and the scrolls. Apparently, par, par, these probably refer to God's Word, possibly to other things Paul wrote down that he needed to have brought. And then there is this question of those who strongly oppose the gospel. And the reference in verse 14 to Alexander, who did a great deal of harm to Paul. And the Greek word there may allude to Alexander being the cause of Paul's actual arrest and why he is where he is now. That's not absolutely clear, but it may be that. So whatever false accusations or cause for arrest Alexander might have brought, here is someone who greatly opposed the gospel. And then there's this allusion to actually being let down by his friends. Verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side. And you read that and you think, how could that be? Why, where was the church at Rome? Paul had a good relationship with the church at Rome. Remember, he had written an epistle to the church at Rome. Now he is at Rome. They love Paul. What about everybody who he mentions here? Of course, not everyone was there now, but at his first... Was, what about Luke? Was he not even there? Apparently not. Maybe some had good reason not to be there, but I'm sure a lot of them 
were not there. This is some kind of first hearing, a preliminary hearing that could have resulted in Paul's execution immediately, but apparently it put things off for a number of months. But no one stood with Paul. He was left on his own to make his defense. He, of course, he says he wasn't on his own. The Lord stood by his side. But it's interesting, Paul doesn't have a bitter spirit about this. He says, may it not be held against them. And we don't know who exactly the them is referring to. But clearly, Christian brothers who you would have thought would have been courageous enough to stand with Paul didn't stand with Paul. And he was left making his defense by himself. And so these are just some of the ways that Paul experienced suffering. And he had to persevere looking to that great day. We mentioned in the announcement that our missions conference is coming up this week. And here's a question that it might be interesting to ask one of the missionaries that we support. If you get a chance to, if you're at one of these events or in your home fellowship group, you might want to ask them, how have you sometimes felt let down by your supporters and by your friends? I'm sure they could give you a good answer. Maybe they'll give you a diplomatic one so they don't make you feel too badly about, you know, how we've failed. But, of course, you don't have to be a missionary to have that kind of experience with people that you trust in, people that will hope will support you and come to your aid. The point is, you and I will face many forms of suffering in this life. But if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and His mighty appearing we will be sustained in hardship. Notice how that theme that Paul begins with in verse 1 comes out again here at the end of verse 8, to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul looks for that great day. He's run the race. He's finished the course. And he has that day in view. Are you experiencing some of these same things that the Apostle Paul knew and experienced? Maybe loneliness? maybe physical affliction in some way, maybe even false accusations or slander or gossip going out about you. That can happen in school. Children can be very cruel, maybe because it's your stand for Christ. Maybe not exactly that, but still suffering nevertheless. Or maybe being forgotten or overlooked by your friends. Take comfort in Christ's love and in His appearing. It enables you to persevere in the long run. But finally, longing for Christ's appearing means that we are trusting him to finally bring us home to heaven. As Paul speaks about his first defense in verse 16, he goes on to say in verse 17 that the Lord stood at his side and gave him strength. And then he goes on to say, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. You see how Paul is taking great comfort in the certainty that Jesus Christ is present with him, was present with him even at this first hearing when no one else was there, and finally will take him home. He will support him from every evil attack. It's not a guarantee that Paul will not be executed. No, in fact, he's not saying that. He's just saying the Lord will preserve me. He will keep me to the end, faithful to him, hold me in his hands, and take me home. 
You wonder if Paul wasn't meditating on Psalm 22, which is probably the psalm that, that the Lord himself had in view on the cross when he spoke some of the words that he spoke on the cross. But for the Apostle Paul to speak about being delivered from the lion's mouth, Psalm 22 speaks about ravening lions surrounding Christ. And this whole theme about being forsaken, being deserted. But for Paul, the Lord stood at his side. Paul had that assurance that the Lord was with him because Jesus endured being utterly forsaken by the Father in bearing our sins. So Paul and the rest of us could know that the Lord would never forsake us because he endured that suffering for us. We don't know how much that same theme was in Paul's mind, but one thing is clear here, and that is The Apostle Paul has absolute certainty that he will be taken home to heaven to be with the Lord. And that's a certainty that we can have as well. And I hope it's a certainty that will grow in your heart and life as you persevere and as you take God's word and hold it fast. The crew of the endurance was not certain whether they would ever make it home. But Shackleton, their leader, kept encouraging them, and finally, when they did reach the end of the ice flow, where the ice ended and the ocean began in earnest there, they recrafted their boats as best they could and set out rowing 50 miles to a little island called Elephant Island, where there wasn't any civilization. And they make it there totally exhausted and fall down, finally getting on solid earth after 17 months of being on water and ice. Well, they don't stay there more than a few days, but they know somehow we've got to press on because we're going to die here on this deserted island if we don't press on. And so the the master craftsman of the ship recrafted one of the lifeboats using wood from the other two into a, a little sailing boat. And the best six men, including Shackleton himself, got on that little recrafted lifeboat with a sail and set off to journey 800 miles to an island that they knew there was an outpost on. And so for 17 days, they sailed through zero-degree temperatures, through swells as high as 40 feet, up and down, totally cold, frostbitten, almost not even sure where they were going. Any change in uh, the uh, reckoning would have led them off course. And they make it to the island, only to find that they have to cross the island's mountains now to get to the other side where the little outpost is. Well, you might guess that they made it, because we know about all this. They made it. They finally got home. They didn't have any guarantee that they would get home, but we do. We have a guarantee that we will be finally brought safely to Christ's heavenly kingdom. And we can say to him, be the glory forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the assurance that Jesus, the righteous one who bore our sins and who loved us with an everlasting love, will keep us to that great day. Whether we live to see it happening, whether we are alive at the day of Christ, or whether we have died and are raised on that day bodily from the dead, we thank you that we have such an assurance We pray that you would help us this week as we go about lives that often seem 
disconnected from that great day. Lives that seem very mundane, lives that have to do with the things of this earth. Help us, by faith, to bring close to our hearts and our minds this reality so that we would be changed because of it and that we would more deeply love you and trust in you and live for you. May you bring that about in each one of our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.